this is Monica Michelle, explicitly sick for the Invisible Network and Network. Um, usually I don't do inner, uh, intros, um, but we did get into some very deep issues. So today I got to interview Jason from the Discomfort Zone podcast. Uh, awesome, amazing, wonderful person. It was a great interview. The reason I'm doing this intro is because we did get pretty deep into the weeds at the end about suicide and... Um, Definitely, please, if this is uh, something that you are struggling with, at the top of the show notes, I will have uh, suicide prevention hotline numbers, um, both both voice and text. And um, yeah, uh, you are valued, you are needed, you are wanted. Um, please, uh, if you um, are having these issues, go to the top. If you go over to show notes as well, you will find Jason's podcast. I recommend it. Um, I the only thing I can say that I don't like about it is there's not more episodes. He is a wonderful storyteller, and I think you're going to really love his podcast. And I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I hope you see how much I enjoyed giving it. Um, hope that Jason will be back on the podcast soon. He was a blast to chat with. I will stop talking now, and I hope you enjoyed the episode this week. Be kind, be gentle, and in whatever way it looks like to you, be a badass. If you can and you're able to support the podcast, even I do this um, out of pocket. So we do have a Patreon account. If you can, um, please go and donate. There's no paywall. Um, everything is available to everyone, but this is just out of the generosity of your spirit because you want to support us in what we're doing. Um, if that is not in your pocketbook plans, please share the episodes. That is, um, we're very proud to say we hit 200,000 downloads and that is thanks to you. So um, thank you and enjoy the episode. No worries whatsoever. <laughs> oh, I'm really happy to meet you. Yeah, me too. Me too. Big fan of your show. I it's cool am, to be on here. You have a new fan in my entire family after your rap act. <laughs> oh, yeah. You liked it? My husband's <laughs> like absolutely obsessed with you now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I wrote it myself. I got a bit of, a, I got a bit of some uh, help from one of my friends. He's a rapper, so he helped me kind of clean it up, so... That was a fun little project. That was commitment. Did you do it in one take? Because that was breath control. Um, so I actually record the audio beforehand. So okay. I was I was really only like lip syncing when I did the video record there and I just synced it together. I, I, I'm feeling a little better because I was I was super amazed that you could stay focused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, focus is not my my main skill set. So <laughs> I hear you, as most of us with brain fog. <laughs> Uh, that's um that definitely makes it a meandering interview so I will um if I get off focus please you're very skilled at interviewing people so I will <laughs> I will defer to you to keep us on topic I'm okay I do I make myself sound better in my own editing I'm usually not the most well-spoken <laughs> you have me desperately jealous we do not have an editor as I'm sure anyone who's listened to the show can attest we have no editors on staff <laughs> Well, it's got a wonderful flow, I find, so. Well, hopefully we'll be able to continue that, but I'm going to keep yeah. us off topic for one more second because mm -hmm. I went through your episodes and I'm in love with your podcast, um, Discomfort Podcast. Discomfort um, Zone, yeah. It was um, my favorite episodes when you were talking about your trip through, was it, I'm sorry, Tibet or through Vietnam or? Uh, Thailand. Thailand. I'm doing great yeah. today. Um, this is what happens when I don't take my painkillers before an episode. So <laughs> please forgive me. Um, but you mentioned a cobra attack and then you didn't give the story. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> I want the story. So I am going to use my power of I have you here and ask you what happened with the cobra. 
Okay, so this was in northern Thailand. We were in this very small town. It's called Pai, um, and it's it's pretty remote. Um, it's it's a pretty big tourist hotspot. But anyways, this was some random morning when essentially the first thing we do every single day would be hop on our motorbikes and go around town and and just go do some exploring. And we were traveling with another Canadian that we had just met, and I was on the back of my friend's moped. And we just see this guy in front of us. He's, you know, maybe 50 meters ahead of us. And he goes around a turn and it looks as he's going around the turn, like he hits a stick in the road and the stick kind of like plops up. So we just see like one end of a stick pop up and we're like, huh, oh, that's interesting. And as we get closer, um, you know, we're probably going like 40 kilometers an hour as we're about to go around this turn. And right as we're within like maybe 10 meters of it, it just turns around like flares open its neck at us and like hisses and then lunges and luckily my friend had some like really really quick reflexes because he just like quickly like just skirted around it um and (laughs) barely missed it but yeah i mean this could be one of those tall you know folk stories where oh it came within one foot of you you know and the story changes every time you tell it but I mean, from my memory, it, it was within a foot or two, like it lunged towards my leg. It came very, very close. And luckily, due to my friend's really quick thinking, um, we dodged it and we, uh, we were safe. I'm so glad I asked that story. That's an <laughs> awesome story. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite terrifying, especially, you know, when, uh, when you're in a very remote uh, village in a third world country, you're not really going to have access to good medical. You mean um, you didn't just pack anti-venom in your backpack? <laughs> I, I figure that's like a crocodile hunter, like, or yeah, that's a, a you just do that, right? <laughs> that would have been the smart thing to do. No, we weren't that prepared, unfortunately, but. <laughs> was that the trip it. where you got injured or was that a different trip? Um, no, um, I'm trying to think. Um, no. So I didn't actually suffer the, like my main injury. Are you referring to the one where that led to all my chronic pain? Yep. That one. (laughs) Uh, so that wasn't actually a trip. That was a sad segue into getting back onto chronic illness topic from Cobras. No worries. No, we can segue right into it. So it was, uh, that was actually about eight months earlier that I suffered the injury. So when I was on this trip, I already was in the very early stages of chronic illness and and my chronic pain journey. Um, And so the injury itself, I just to give you some context, fourth year student, I was perfectly healthy. Um, You know, I was happy for a second. I'm in the US system. So I don't know what fourth year means. Oh, yeah. So this is my final year of university. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So so I'm about to graduate. This was like the very first semester. So this is in the fall. Um, and, you know, so at the time I'm studying engineering physics. I'm playing lots of sports. I'm, I'm on the triathlon team and all that. And I'm just playing a, a pickup game of basketball. So nothing too, too intense. And I was battling somebody for a rebound. I caught the ball and I twisted around really quickly and passed the ball up court. And as I twisted, I just felt like the most intense stabbing pain right in my ribs. So it it honestly, the way that I would describe it, it felt not that I know what it feels like, but it felt like somebody just stabbed me in the ribs Um, and it hurt to breathe. So immediately I just limped over to the sideline. I collapsed on the ground there. 
And I just laid there until the end of the game. I didn't get up or anything. And I just, right after the game, I tried to stand up and uh, I couldn't. Like, I just literally couldn't support myself. It was like the most intense stabbing pain ever. So I got transported to the hospital uh, in an ambulance and they just diagnosed it as an intercostal muscle strain. So those are the muscles that you use to help facilitate breathing. They like help expand and contract the, the chest cavity. Um, and essentially at the hospital, they just told me, give it three weeks and you'll be perfectly fine and you'll be able to return, return to sports. And, uh, yeah, for me, that wasn't the case. That was the beginning of a really, really long, long journey. And what did that journey end up becoming? Like, did you get diagnosed afterwards with something or? So it wasn't for a very long time. And so I didn't hear the words fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome for probably for another three years after that. So a really long time. And essentially what happened was um, following that injury, most people when they get an injury, you know, the pain is there until the tissue itself recovers. And that's our body's way of protecting. Uh, um, that's our body's way of protecting ourselves. With me, that didn't happen. And I was under so much stress during my fourth year. This is when I'm trying to lock up a job for after graduation. So I'm going off to job interviews all over the place. I'm working to teaching assistant jobs. I'm, you know, working with in a very, very demanding program. So it was like I spent the next week in bed um, trying to recover. And I was in so much pain that I couldn't focus or even do any homework from, from home. Um, I essentially just fell so incredibly far behind that once I returned to class, I just had to work like nonstop. And like by, by the end of the year, it was like I was living on coffee. I'd study until three in the morning and um, wake up at eight o'clock and just chug back like four cups of coffee and go back to class. So um, yeah, essentially my brain was in this hypersensitized state where the pain I was experiencing was amplifying the stress that I was having. And the stress I was having was just amplifying the pain. Um, so it was like alarm bells are constantly going off in my in my brain. And essentially, after the injury itself had healed, um, this vicious cycle of chronic pain just continued. So me putting myself through all that stress during my last year of university created this vicious cycle and actually changed my brain chemistry. And it changed it changed the way that my brain that my brain perceived pain. So is that where the fibromyalgia came into the diagnosis? Yeah, well, so again, that was that was still the very beginning stages. And I just kind of pushed through. And I even after I graduated, I went on that trip to Thailand, had an amazing time, my pain actually went way down. Um, I think I should just go and live in Thailand and just go on a permanent vacation out there. If nothing, you've got some of the best stories from it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so after I returned from Thailand, I came back. I worked at an engineering job, which I absolutely loved, but it was sitting for eight hours a day. And in doing that, just gradually from month to month, the pain returned and it spread across my body. So in the beginning, it was just on the right side of my abdomen. You know, a month later, it was on the left side, and then it went up my upper back and 
you know, through my head, through my neck, and through the rest of my body. So that was when the fibromyalgia settled in, but it wasn't until 2014 that I actually received the diagnosis for it. So how did you make your decisions? I mean, you're pretty young. You'd started a job. How did you make your choices on starting or stopping careers? I, I know you're in Canada, which I know that makes a, a difference in, in what your decisions are based on um, anyone listening to both of us. We're in very different systems. So your health insurance is not tied to your job. So that makes it a little different on choices, but you're still building a life. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, having having free medical care is wonderful. Um, yeah, just you know. let the envy from the, <laughs> yeah. the border here. I, I'm just trying to let the green die down a bit. <laughs> Sorry, I'm rubbing it in here. That's okay. We're used to it. Believe me, we're used to it over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it was really something where I... In the beginning, it wasn't really something I acknowledged or really spoke about openly to those around me too much. You know, I was like, oh, I've got a little bit of pain, but, you know, I'm working through it and I'm sure it'll go away soon. But it was becoming clear that that wasn't the case. And I was having conversations with my parents about telling them, I think that my health is getting worse and I think I need to stop working so that I can focus on it. And at the beginning, they didn't understand um, how bad it was, especially when you look at somebody who looks like a perfectly healthy 22-year-old. They just thought, okay, he's got a little bit of nagging injury. Like, this is not something you need to stop your career. And, you know, I was at the beginning of my career, had a very good job lined up. Um, and it really just came down to, I didn't, I didn't speak with my boss about it until it got really, really bad. And that's when I just went to go and speak with them and tell them like, listen, this is getting really, really serious. I need to take a couple of months off to go and focus on it. And he, luckily he was um, incredibly compassionate about that and completely understanding. He's like, listen, like the work that you're doing here that do not prioritize this, like you need to really focus on your health and make sure you're taking care of that. So I took a couple of months off to focus on rehab and then I went back to work part-time uh, and I was, you know, maybe working 15 to 20 hours a week. And I did that for the next six months. But by the end of that six months, it was like, things were just getting worse. My pain, it, I, I would, I couldn't sit for more than five minutes in a row without excruciating pain. So I was just, you know, I'd stand, I'd sit at a keyboard and, you know, try to type out an email that should take me two minutes and it would take me 30 minutes just because I couldn't focus long enough to, to actually, um, you know, put the per, put the words, um, yeah, put the words in. We're doing good with the words. I don't mean to make you do a spit take. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. So how did you, I'm sorry. I'm just, I, I'm always really interested in like how we make our choices and our decisions. Like I I'm much older than you are. And I had like 10 years of careers. So I kept switching because I kept getting too sick to do the job I, I trained for. So I trained for a new job and start that career. And then I get too sick for that. And I'd, I'd start a different one. I'm always intrigued at like how you make those choices on what you're going to do next. Like when you realize that engineering and sitting at a, a desk was not going to work out, what was your next step? How did you figure out what you were going to do next? Well, I just went and spoke to my boss and told him um, then that I needed to take an indefinite leave of absence. And my plan was to really just take a couple of months off. 
um, you know, go work on swimming, do Tai Chi, practice meditation, do all that stuff, get my health under control and then come right back to it. And that would be that, but that, that just really didn't happen at all. Like even after I was away from the job for, for a couple of months, my health didn't improve at all. And, um, you know, so I kept at it with my rehab. Um, it, it was a really tough winter. So this is going back to 2014 and, um, you know, my body, like most other people with chronic illness, uh, they struggle with the cold and especially, you know, being up here in Canada, we've got our minus 20 degree <laughs> Celsius. I'm feeling a little better about California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 50. We're terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, it snowed last week here. It was Are horrible. You serious? Yeah. No, I'm serious. There were snow flurries <laughs> coming down all day. It was. It was nuts. And we were all like, "Wow, it's raining in May, and it's 60 <laughs> degrees. What are we gonna do?" <laughs> Yeah, you do not get my pity yeah. for that at all. No, no, we, nor should we. I mean, we should get your pity for no health care and for like, I think right now the houses just in the suburbs are going for almost 900,000. Wow. Like for like a three bedroom, one bath. Like, yeah. 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 So that's, that's what we get your sympathy for. We do not get sympathy for weather. It's like our freezing, like where people start freaking out, putting on like jackets and scarves, 50. <laughs> that's where people start flipping out around here and that's like the coldest it gets in the area i live it's like 50 is about it that's if it's lower than that it's news when it gets to 50 we're wearing shorts <laughs> here in canada so you can always tell the implants here in the bay area by like the people who like got sent over to google from like the midwest or from canada because they're all in shorts through the whole time just looking at us like we're nuts with our sweaters <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's what you're acclimatized to. It is, but I can, um, I, I actually, I felt all of my like muscles just tense up with the idea of snow and cold. That that must have been brutal to to deal with, like the newfound. I don't know. Like, I don't know if you get that restless feeling. You're a traveler. I used to be a traveler. Like all of a sudden, your your borders get to be your room sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that that has been really difficult. I mean, especially with the pandemic going on here right now. So that's something that's Welcome definitely world feeling. to our, our uh, quarantine lives. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that was something that was very, very challenging. Um, and so um, getting back to, I guess, where I was back in 2014, and, and talking about my journey. So um I actually made the decision to go back to Thailand in 2014 when, you know, after I'd stopped work and it was really, really awful over here and I was struggling just accepting the limitations of my illness. And so I just decided to go back to Thailand and meditate there for a little while, stay at a monastery. Um, and sorry, I totally forgot. What was your question again? <laughs> Brain fog moment. <laughs> Sorry for everyone who's written in how much you hate my laugh. I couldn't help it. Um, <laughs> God, if nothing gives you a tough skin, it's podcasting. Um, <laughs> no idea how annoying my voice or my laugh was. Um, sorry, I was asking you, um, huh, we're going to do really well today. I really should have taken a painkiller before I talked to you. It's literally weighing like I haven't eaten breakfast. Do I take my painkiller and possibly throw up during the interview? It was, a, <laughs> it was a not vomiting that went out. Um, well, I will ask you a different question then. Um, what got you to start your podcast? So that was, it was actually quite natural how that ended up. And so in 2016 and 2017, I went through this downward spiral where I got very, very sick in a short period of time. 
And, you know, by the later part of 2016, I was essentially bedridden for 95% of the day. Um, I would only leave to go up to the washroom and walk down to the end of the hall. And for a while, my coping mechanism was watching TV, Netflix, watching YouTube, studying chess videos, doing all that sort of stuff. But I developed really, really severe headaches and I couldn't focus I, I couldn't look at a screen for more than a couple of minutes without getting excruciating headaches. So one of my friends just recommended to me that I start listening to podcasts because I don't have to look at, at anything. I can shut my eyes while, while I do that. And so that became, uh, that kind of became my portal to the world outside of my bedroom. You know, when you're really trapped and you feel like you're missing out on all of human experience, it was a way of listening to other people's stories was a way of like connecting to the larger human experience. And in a way, I almost felt like I experienced a little bit of their world or like, I, I almost felt like I had walked in their shoes. Mm. And that to me, that was, that was a really wonderful experience. And yeah, I just, I guess after I started to recover, it was like, I need to start a podcast. And what do I have experience with? Well, I'm going through something that is a pretty unique experience to the vast majority of the world. And I think in storytelling overall, um, the more representation and chronic illness and disability that we can get, the better. So yeah, I kind of felt like I know there's a lot of people out there who are too sick to go and share their story. So I felt obligated to go and do that myself since I um, was lucky enough to, to have the recovery that I had. That is one thing that I fell head over heels for your podcast was what a great storyteller you are. I'm a, a lit nerd, so I love a good storyteller. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, I'm completely obsessed. I, I went down. To, I know I don't sound like I did my research. I really did my research. <laughs> um, I really went down a rabbit hole in all of your content and your episodes are amazing. I was really in love with them. Thank you so much. So one of the things in the show notes, I was like, fascinated by was you made a really important distinction between living with pain and suffering with pain. Yeah. And that is language can be so I find even making that simple switch of saying that you're living with pain rather than suffering from pain. I feel like even just saying that out loud, it changes the way that you view your experience. Like when I think about my own experience, I don't, I'm not suffering 24 seven. It's not like my mind isn't constantly going there. Yeah. I've got physical symptoms that never let up that impact every moment of my life. But you know, right now when I'm doing this podcast, yeah, I'm in pain, but I'm also enjoying this. This is a cool experience. So I'm not really so much focused on it at, at this exact moment. You're, you seem really good at keeping your focus. There was a story you told, um, about your your time at the monastery and really I'm going to go back and, and re-listen to it because it um it hit me really hard I'm, I'm not just fascinated by compassion but that's been one of the the things I've worked the hardest on in myself is finding compassion with people and you had an unusual moment of compassion with someone that you weren't expecting to yeah uh, yeah go ahead no I, I was just trying to lead you into that story or like just to talk about the that moment where you met someone you weren't expecting to connect with. And I like, seriously, my favorite part of the whole thing was you talking about like, I am so mad right now and I should be in bliss, but this person ticked me off. And I, I just love this idea. Like, because we're supposed to learn how to meditate through anything, through pain, through discomfort, through like the whole point of like learning that focus is 
that you're in the middle of something bad so you can focus and that you're like, if that bad thing had not just happened, gosh darn it, I'd be in bliss right now. <laughs> and and it can it can be the smallest thing too. It can be anything. And you're like, if that one thing didn't happen, I'd be perfectly happy. My experience would be wonderful here if this one jerk didn't piss me off. Thank <laughs> you for the reference day, I swear. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I met this. Yeah, so I can speak to that a little bit. I met this. Very, and by the way, please go yeah. over to the podcast. Like anyone listening, go over to listen to Discomfort Zone. Listen to to all the episodes. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I met this. Thank you so much for for referencing it. Um, huge fan of of my show. Uh, sorry, huge fan of your show <laughs> as well. <laughs> this is um, what happens when chronic illness people interview each other. <laughs> We're on a dash of ADD and we are set. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm going to have a lot. I always have issues with my words. So I, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a recurring theme here. Um, yeah, I, I met a very, oh, what, give me one quick second here. Dizziness spell. That's fun. We're we're both doing great. I, I don't know if you heard at the start of the podcast, but there's a loud popping sound and that was my femur coming out. So we're, oh, we're doing good with dizzy spells and dislocating joints. It'll be fun. Wow. You you just smiled right through it. <laughs> you know, I was a ballerina for years and years and um, anyone who's a ballerina can tell you we could have bleeding toes, we can snap ankles and we were still going to smile through that entire performance. No problem. Yeah, that's the sport of pain tolerance, right? It, is, it was incredible training on you're going to just be able to look fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All about presentation. Well, that and not eating and smoking or definitely. And the, the coffee, lots and lots of coffee. Very super, super healthy. <laughs> it was such a healthy sport, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've heard it's gotten way better. But when I had my daughter, I was like, yeah, anything that requires you to eat less to be in the performance is not something I'm signing up for. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to tell me about your trip before Dizzy. Are you yeah, yeah. settled into, is that any time you need to take a break or stop? Just we, we can put this on pause. Yep. I'll let you know. I'm good for now. Okay. Um, so yeah, I ended up at this um, monastery out in the jungle in Thailand and met this very interesting person there. You know, the vast majority of people that you meet, they're very, very calm, soft-spoken, this, uh, I don't even know, like those very wise sounding people and just people who are very compassionate to be around. You just feel more relaxed. And then there's this one person who showed up who was just started telling us, you know, he, he did not fit the bill. He didn't look like he belonged there at all. And he just, he began bragging about how uh, he had spent his last couple years living in a small city in Northern Thailand, how he had purchased a fake teaching certificate to go and teach children there. Um, and um, during his nights, he would go around uh you not know doing teaching children not teaching children <laughs> not he, he this is not the person you want teaching your children at all i would not send my kids there if i had them not without some serious <laughs> recovery and drug rehab <laughs> yeah seriously um he so he essentially would just go around and he'd be shooting up heroin all night he would um you know go get prostitutes every single night and he would just go back and go back to work and then he ended up becoming a drug smuggler so he'd smuggle in drugs from Myanmar um, into Thailand. And so 
we're all sitting around a table at this monastery and he's going on about the story. And I think everybody at the table at the time was like, um, you know, this, we're, we're not the people who are going to be like rooting for you when you're telling us all this stuff. And um, yeah, it was kind of an uncomfortable experience and I just kind of went away and I was like, I want to really avoid this person. That's not the reason I came here. This is the end of my trip. I want to be relaxed. Um, and get it. This is what I came here to avoid. Uh, and yeah, anyways, I didn't see him for, uh, I didn't see him for a day or two after that. And, um, yeah, when, when we ended up seeing him the next time we could see he was going through heroin withdrawal and he was talking about his suicidal ideation and, it, it just it, like just hearing that completely transformed the way that I view I viewed him. It went from this person who you see who is extremely flawed, and um, you know has practiced made some very very bad decisions. To all of a sudden, when you hear that they're suffering, um, it completely changes the way you perceive them. And him and I actually went on to like become friends. Um, you know, I skipped one I'm of the so last days the post was to this yeah yeah well sorry i didn't actually i haven't actually seen him since then it, this is more of like a we became friends at the monastery um i actually have no idea what he got up to after that never spoke to him but we were yeah um in in the story as i mentioned i kind of skipped a meditation session near the end i skipped a lot of them i wasn't the best student um and uh we just played uh, we just played cards all afternoon one day and he was just telling me about his entire life plans and, and how he wanted to get things back on track. And yeah, it was a very, it was, it was very interesting. It, it completely flipped my perception of him. I just, I don't know if you've gotten to see the show yet, but um, the good place. I haven't. No. Okay. I'm, I'm putting this on your list of like on your radar and one of the best shows I've ever watched, but your story reminded me a little bit of one of the main characters in it. Who's, um it starts the show as a monk and i'm not going to ruin this for anyone or for you but it's a and it's like basically ethics 101 but in a comedy show and i will not ruin twists i won't discuss this but i, I really want to because your your discussion on this just makes me think of that character jason so much and his journey through like being a very unexpected person who actually seems to be one of the most enlightened people even though he'd be like if you saw him and you knew like his his past and who he had been, you'd be like, not the person I would guess as a monk, <laughs> but at the very end of it, you're like, wow, that you know, you might actually be the most enlightened person in this whole thing of like actually like living in the world and feeling compassion in a way of like going beyond someone's walls of like, I did this bad thing, I am this bad person, and then like just hiding all the like need behind that. I've got to put that on my list. I'm definitely going to check that out. I, those are the most compelling stories to me. Like when you think you know somebody and then you don't and you see this huge shift and then. I don't want to like traumatize you. Cause like on your thing, you're like the thing that drains me is political talk. And I'm not going to talk politics. I promise. Um, but one of the things I've learned the most is in discussing things. I'll talk to anyone. I, I, no one has to agree with me to talk to me. I just don't, handle disrespect well but like I I will respect and chat with anyone and even talking to people who I vastly disagree with I mean I live in the United States under I can't even say his name um but I live <laughs> in a time and a period with people I disagree with who are in power and people who are even my family very much disagree with me and I found it really important to learn to speak in compassion first 
and to like try to figure out what like you seem scared you seem really scared like and you seem to be hurting so let's work from there and then we can like move politics aside a bit and talk about what you're scared about absolutely and and just getting to chat with people i feel like that you when if you don't understand them and you just label them as like oh that person is this political belief then you're i don't know maybe they have something that you could learn from like maybe you don't agree with their beliefs at all but you can at least recognize a bit of yourself in them i found just asking what are you afraid of works really mm. well like what's scaring you you seem scared and even people i i can disagree with on red button issues we can go okay you're scared about this okay I'm kind of scared about that too. What do you think we could, let, let's just, let's leave the red button words out of this and let's talk about, this seems to be the root of the problem. You're scared about losing your job. That's terrifying. I, I, that's very scary. How do we work together to make sure that you have training for the next wave, for the next thing that could work? Like you're scared about losing your factory. That's terrible. That's awful. I'm so sorry. How do we train you for something else? Like, that's, yeah, that's such a great conversation starter, too, because that can lead in so many directions as well. I find it tremendously helpful when talking to people who deeply disagree with me and who I deeply disagree with because the red button words are scary and they make you want to put your walls up, put your defenses up, get out the cannons and be like, you will not take my rights. Yeah. And I understand that. That's a that's a feeling I feel too. It's just, I feel like if you ask first, what are you scared about? And then you work from what someone's afraid of, the actual issue they're scared of. There's usually some room. Like, yeah. I, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially that's... with your family members. You can't, like, I mean, yes, you can. I can't divorce my family members. So I, <laughs> I have to find a way to... <laughs> But yeah, no, I thoroughly agree with divorcing people who are are not emotionally, mentally healthy. Please don't write me letters. Um, I agree with that. I'm just saying me personally cannot divorce family, must talk to. Oh, well, I live with my mom and dad, so I definitely <laughs> really can't divorce can't. them. <laughs> definitely not. That sounds <laughs> like you've gotten a lot of support in your illness from your family. Yeah, they've been incredible. Um, you know, my parents, they went through hell for me for many years in trying to support me and seeing what they went through it like it i yeah i didn't recognize it for a while just how significant it was because i think i was caught up in my own suffering and didn't even recognize that but when i when i spoke with them about all that stuff it was it, it really hit me they have they've sacrificed so much they you know my dad retired early to help take care of me um and essentially they were like my 24/7 attendants like care workers um when i was severely ill did absolutely everything for me so they've they've been incredible and supporting me a little bit um like financially whenever whenever i've needed it they've been there too um and yeah yeah so many of my family members like my parents are just the beginning um you know my sister and i are incredibly close as well my uncles so i'm really That's fortunate what I explain to my kids I'm like you guys better be nice to each other you're gonna need each other <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's when, that's when family, the value of family really sticks out to you when you get sick and you know, when you, when you can actually lean on those people. And that's, that's such a tremendous privilege and it's a wonderful thing to have. And it's, it's so hard when people don't have that when, when your family isn't your refuge, that's, that's so difficult and heartbreaking when you need to actually build your own family from people you haven't had that, that bond to. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, in, in my in my experience, I'm certainly privileged to that. I couldn't imagine where I'd be today if I didn't have all of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, those stories are the ones that always hit me in the the chest. So you're like my my um, illness has a over sixty percent divorce rate. Wow. And yeah. Um, yeah, I have the the most amazing husband ever, and I'm just like I am so privileged and lucky and grateful for the family I have. But my family's my support and refuge. Like I can't. It's so hard for me when I or hard for me. That's so selfish. Um, <laughs> I I just it breaks my heart when I hear people's stories where their their families are not the refuge. Right. It's like, where's your safety net if you don't have your family and friends who, who are there to pick you up? I, I guess it's, you know, like we're uh, even are trying to build a really big um, group with the invisible, not broken. So we can like provide some of that family support for, for others. So, like, this is not fair for people not to have this. Yeah. I think it's such an incredible thing that you guys are doing and bringing everybody together and like just listening to your guys' podcasts as well. It's like a means of support. It's like, going to therapy without actually needing to go to therapy. <laughs> well, everyone feel really bad for Eva because it's her job to keep me on track. And I can't tell you how many times I get these texts. Like I sent you an email. I sent you an email. I sent you an email last week, woman. Where is you? <laughs> not reading your emails. So everyone feel really bad for Eva because the poor woman is trying her best <laughs> to wrangle us together. Um, you put something in there about like what would make you feel better about easier to move in the world. I've got to stop talking with my hands. Um, <laughs> such a stupid thing to do when you have all your stainless. Um, and you talked about that it would be easier if people understood um, chronic illness and mental health in a way that it wasn't so hard to talk about because talking about this with others can make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And when I've spoken to other people out in the world, um, you know, most of my friends are pretty good about talking about this stuff, but some of them, it's a struggle as well as a lot of strangers that I'll go out and meet. And when I'm, if I meet somebody and I start up a conversation with them, everything can be going fine until I mention that I live with chronic pain and mental health, uh, symptoms as well. And then it's just like the way that people look at you all of a sudden, like, they're like, Oh, Oh, okay. Um, that's really sucks. And it just completely shifts the the way that the entire conversation was going. And sometimes I don't even want to mention that, or I'll just brush it off really quickly. I'll just be like, oh yeah, I've got some chronic illness issues just so that I don't get that sort of reaction out of people. And I just think life would be so much easier if I could just air out what I've been through and just people are able to listen um, and be present with I know it's it's a difficult thing and if you haven't been exposed to it it's it's certainly not the easiest task in the world but yeah life would, would wouldn't life be easier for you if if you could just chat openly about this stuff I honestly I do chat up I I don't yeah. mind making people a little uncomfortable I don't try mm -hmm. to make people uncomfortable I just don't have a filter I, I really don't like from thought to out of my mouth is happens faster than I realize I'm saying it most of the time so I I have no filter with people and I tend to just have a Bambi face and everyone goes through like the stages of disbelief. Like as I, you know, if they want to know about what's going on, it's like, I have dislocations five to 10 times a day. And then I wait because they look horrified. And then I'm like, okay. And so this thing, like, what are you doing with your life? Well, I do this and this and this. And then they start calming down after they say a few things like, 
we all have those stories with people who blunder and they're like, oh, your life must be a living hell. I actually got that one. Um, or, you know, like, <laughs> no. yeah, and they, there's a lot of things that people say. And I try to remember that they are, they're grappling with the idea of it too. I only mind when I'm using my cane because if mm-hmm. I'm in my wheelchair, fine, go ahead and talk to me all day. No problem. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll listen and I'll walk you through it. No problem. But when I'm with my cane, like I had my, my uh, male person was coming through with the, the male and I was using my cane and she was just could not process me with a cane. And so I was like, okay, so this is, she's like, get better. And I usually say, thank you. But I was in a mood and I'm like, yeah, thanks. I don't get better. This is genetic. <laughs> the poor woman short circuited. So I had to stand there with my cane cause I couldn't get out of the conversation. Now I was already in. I'm like, I will never not just say thank you again. Like I'm never doing it again, but it was like 15 minutes of trying to calm this woman down. She's processing my life. Like she couldn't. Yeah. So you People- Make it easier. Yeah. <laughs> People get un- especially uncomfortable around mobility devices as well. I've heard, I've heard, um, you know, I'm a part of a media lab and one person in the class was just telling me about how like people will always ask, oh, how long have you been in that wheelchair for? And I thought that his answer was really brilliant. Uh, he was just like, oh, since 730 this morning. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't sleep in this thing. Come on. Like, <laughs> I'm napping. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Someone I know calls um, everyone who's healthy temporarily abled, and I thought that was a really important change of phrase. As we were talking about the importance of language, that's that's a really great way of looking at it. Because I mean, like we're all going to either live long enough to become disabled or we'll die first, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody, nobody's immune to aging, and yeah, we're all going to go through some sort of health issues throughout our lives. So that, that is a really port, important distinction. Right? I think so. Like if we're planning our laws, if we're planning our disability laws, if we're planning for cities, if we're planning for housing, I think remembering that every single person is going to need things to be gentler is important. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Do you find that accessibility um, in wh- where you're living? Is is that an issue? <laughs> oh man, that came out as a cackle, didn't it? Um, <laughs> so I call it uh, Cripple X Games here. I've yep. gotten thrown out of my wheelchair more times than I can count because the, um, <laughs> you, you think like, as I live near Berkeley, so you think like super like hippie, you know, like everyone's like into making everything accessible and no, they don't care. <laughs> like, there's like tree trunks in the middle of streets. The, um, <laughs> this is the other thing. Like when you get disabled, you, you realize how ignorant you were to everything before. Like when you were temporarily abled, you you didn't think about things. Like if you're walking across the street and someone's in a wheelchair, you might have crossed in the center of the street and you never once thought the streets are actually a hump. They're not usually straight flat. They're a hump. So if I go off to the side to avoid you, I'm going to fall on my side. Right. And I also need the middle of that ramp. I can't go up that little like area where it's, it goes into like a ledge. I can't do that. So either I need to go into your ankles and make you disabled or you need to move. <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of funny, the things that you just didn't even think about before. Yeah. You, you see the world in a completely new, new light. Yeah. And I used to think like, oh, there's a ramp to that door. That's great. They made that accessible. It's not accessible like if it's a ramp it's not accessible it means i have to roll backwards while grabbing the door opening it while i roll backwards onto the ramp locking my wheelchair unlocking it and somehow 
throwing myself through the door before the door closes. Like that's not accessible at all. Unless there's a button to hit. So the door opens that ramp is very scary, especially when it's like those like 20 to 30 degree ramps. Oh yeah. That's a huge safety hazard too. Oh, it's, I mean, it's like, it's a YouTube video waiting to happen is what that is. <laughs> yeah. Lawsuit waiting to happen as well. Not really. No. Uh, no. If you want to sue, for, this is the big thing everyone thinks. They're like, Oh, someone's not accessible. You can see them. No, I have to hire a lawyer. That's expensive. Right. And the best that the lawyer can do is like send someone out to look at it and then send them a letter. And then there's like a whole bunch of loopholes for businesses to get around that. Because the United States, sorry, uh, never mind. Um, yeah, okay, but real quick, we have this weird libertarian idea that the market will correct itself. So if, like, I get told all the time on Twitter, on Facebook, if this place is not accessible to you, thank you, Target, for your big pillars in the middle of aisles. I really appreciate that. Um, don't shop there. It's like, okay, but where do I shop then? <laughs> like, there's not enough people in wheelchairs who get out to make this a market correction thing. Yeah, and isn't it, technically uh, you know the ada aren't all shops supposed to be accessible and they're not and there's a whole bunch of ways around it either grandfathered in clauses or if they're making um what's called a reasonable effort their reasonable effort is good enough that's some extremely vague language it is some impressively vague language and if you think about like oh well it's at least a step if you think about what the disabled community had to do to get there like they they marched wheeled on Washington and pulled themselves up the Capitol steps on their forearms. That is serious sacrifice, bravery, and intense physical labor. And the best they could do was some very like mild milk toast language in their laws that they still don't really uphold. And thanks to the new administration, a lot of this got gutted. Yeah, fuck. Right. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. I'm allowed yeah. to swear here, right? I've heard it, it before on the podcast, so. No, go ahead. I, I, I'm trying. <laughs> my auntie has been on my case about my swearing. So <laughs> my auntie always wins, and I've been a little better. But no, I, I, we're in pain. We get to fucking swear. Um, but yeah, it's really frustrating. And I don't know if you've been traveling since you've been sick, but traveling is very um, dicey when you're using mobility aids. Yeah, yeah. I've only traveled once since I got very sick. Uh and it was it was really just to Utah for for a quick trip and rented the house. So there wasn't too much of actual traveling around. So luckily I didn't run into too many barriers there, but I mean besides the extremely dry climate, but that was <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you count that as an accessibility barrier, but it felt like I, I couldn't breathe a for a week. Barrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend the traveling still, but it does require a lot more consideration and calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you found airports to be pretty accessible? I found SFO to be fantastic. Um, I found Georgia to be the absolute worst ever. Like shockingly bad. Like someone actually took my wheelchair and parked me in a corner and went on break. And my husband was like, really? I need to take her to get onto our next flight. And they're like, yeah, you can't. You can't touch that wheelchair. So I got like put in a corner. I was like, baby in a corner is very dirty dancing. <laughs> yeah, you're like, <laughs> if my husband was any calmer, he'd be in a coma, but he was, I've never seen him. Like he does not get mad. You have to, you have to like work to get him mad. And he was pissed. Oh, I would be furious. I mean, that's treating you like you're just an object. That oh no, I was luggage. Off to, yeah. I was luggage. And I dislocated my shoulder so violently that my, 
my um, <laughs> I'm, I'm motioning this as everyone's like listening to this. Um, my my brachius was almost to like my breastbone. It was all the way over. And so I just asked the lady, I was like, can you, do you know where I can get an ace bandage? All of my stuff is, by the way, never lock your braces in your luggage. Do not do that. Put it in your, your backpack. Do not travel without bracing if you're other stainless. I didn't. And like, can I get a doctor? Is there someone who can help me relocate this before a four hour flight? Like, or just give me an ace bandage. I'll relocate it myself. I just need a bandage. Yeah, not my problem. And she turned around and walked off. Like, just <laughs> not that dealing with real. you. <laughs> it's like I was nice. I was not even my usual bitchy snarky self. Wow. <laughs> I I don't think I would have been that calm if I were in your position there. there there's not yeah. a lot you can do when you have tickets. Like if they decide you are not a safe person right. to fly, they're yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I found SFO to be incredibly wheelchair accessible. They're actually trying to put in plans for wheelchairs that um, are programmed to get you to your gate. So your wheelchair would, you'd like reserve the wheelchair, it would meet you at your cab, and then it would wheel you to your gate, which yeah. I am dying for that to happen. I'm really excited there. Um, SFO is working with the company that I have a wheelchair with. So I'm really psyched for that. <laughs> like, come on, guys, <laughs> be nice. That'd be amazing. Yeah, be and amazing. the other places, like I've I've traveled all over Europe, and um, while the the airports aren't terribly accessible, the people are so kind. Like, I just really nice people who rush around to do what they can to adapt for you. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. you, now, when when you're going on these trips, like, how do you plan for them? Do you research each city ahead of time and the accessibility in it? I don't have the attention span. My husband does. <laughs> He's fantastic. <laughs> um, and I, I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. So I use my wheelchair on days like today where I'm dislocating my legs. Like, so when my legs are going, I use my wheelchair. Um, the next few trips we're going to, we were supposed to actually be in England last month, but uh, COVID. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is going to be my first full wheelchair trip this year where I was not going to use my canes. Because um, we did Paris the year before where I was in canes. And that was just brutally painful. I couldn't, I can never do that again. Yeah. So um, I'll let you know with the next trip when COVID, um, if COVID calms down and we travel again, it will definitely be full time. I have a really cool wheelchair where it goes over potholes and it has these like really cool wheels that can go over like a three inch differential. And that's awesome. It's really fun. And now you're interviewing me. So I'm putting you back up. Yeah, this did switch around here. It did, and I love. I don't know how that happened. I, you know, when you have two podcast hosts, it's it's bound to happen. (laughs) Um, You talked about, um, and by the way, we're at an hour, and I will kidnap you. So at any time where you're like, "This hurts," I'm done. Just tell me to shut up, and I will stop. I promise, I will not actively kidnap you. No, this is energizing me right now. So this is great. (laughs) I'm really glad to hear that. Um, you talked about candlelight meditation and I was, I've never heard about that. It just kind of sounded fascinating. I wonder if it actually really helps your sleep. It it does. Yeah. A lot. That's something that I've started implementing in the past six months. I heard about it on some podcast I was listen, listening to about somebody who just turns off all the lights in their house at a certain hour and, um, just turns on candles instead. Um, and that, essentially that that's what I've been doing for uh, when when it gets to eight o'clock, I shut off all the lights. I put away my phone. Maybe I'll listen to a podcast, but that's it. I won't look at my phone screen at all. And I will just walk around the upstairs of my parents' house here in absolute darkness, just with a candle. So I'll do some meditation with it. Um, I will 
um, yeah, that will essentially, I won't use any natural light. And there's, I, yeah, I remember hearing about this on a David Suzuki program, um, the nature of things. I don't think that plays in the States at all, but, um, there's something with blue light that suppresses the production of melatonin in our brains, which melatonin is the chemical that um, helps us sleep. So, um, you know, we, we didn't evolve. Um, we didn't evolve with blue light um, at nighttime or the rest of the, the light spectrum because, you know, we're, we were always in darkness, but um, when you've got candlelight, and it's fire, it's more red shifted, that actually encourages the production of melatonin in our brain. So I find now when I just turn off my candlelights or when I blow them out, I can just fall asleep quite easily. And that's I something that, that could never happen stay before. Stay awake and not like forget to blow it out. I could see that happening with me. That could certainly happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could that could be a fire hazard. Yeah. <laughs> but I love that idea of like that sounds like a really peaceful way to stop the day. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I am the most irritable person in the world when I don't get a good sleep. So for me, I mean, it's, it's for everybody's benefit in my household for me to get a good sleep. So, so yeah. Well, you need your creative mind to come up with new raps. I really see being in the <laughs> <and> sparkle. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, maybe that's a new career for me. If podcasting doesn't end up panning out, I'll just become a rapper. I, I mean, it depends on what you want from podcasting, <laughs> what you're actually looking to gain from it. Monetary, we have not figured that out, but no, not at but all. as far as like being a uh, finding purpose after being sick, this was, this was kind of all I asked for from the podcast was to find purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. So how does um, social life work? If you don't want to answer that question, but I'm just curious, this uh, very different points in our lives. I'm just curious how this worked for you for, for social life. Oh, how my illness impacts yeah. my social life. Um, I now I find it hard going to bigger group gatherings. Um, well, sorry, I should back up a little bit. When I got really severely ill, I think everybody, when you get really, really sick, you're going to lose some friends um, in your life. I, I think everybody, oh, you know, Titanic exodus or some. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I certainly had that some friends dropped out, but I also had a lot of friends stick around and, you know, for whatever it was a year when I was severely ill, dealing with severe mental health symptoms, suicidal ideation and all that. I rarely went two days in a row without having a visitor. I'm extremely, extremely lucky to have that support network they were really what kept me going until i was able to get the medical help that i needed um, to, to help recover um and yeah since then i mean those friends have continued to support me um my health is much more stable now than it was and i'm don't need that amount of social support um but but yeah i'm still extremely close with all of them um I brain fog moment here. <laughs> um, right. I was going to talk about how it's now impacted me. I, I still find it. I don't, I used to be extremely extroverted. I loved going to parties, meeting as many people as I possibly could there. I just can't handle that mentally. It, like it, it feels like such a strenuous workout, going to parties, meeting new people, carrying on a conversation. Like it's like, 
I don't even know. I'm, I'm putting all of my focus towards just remember, like listening to the person and not completely zoning out. Um, and yeah, it's such a difficult thing that it's like, I don't want to put myself through that constantly. I'll do it every once in a while, but can't be a daily, can't be a weekly thing. I, I'm always intrigued by, by extroverts. Like I, I'm, um, I, I can give talks to a thousand people. I've had no problem like public speaking. No worries. There's, there's a message. I can get it across. I can even chat. But the idea of like being in a room full of more than like 50 people that I don't have a targeted idea of what I'm doing. I'll hide in the corner and find the bookshelf. And that is exactly where I will be. I will find your books and I will go through your bookshelf. <laughs> That's that's an awesome way to, to to handle that problem. There's no way I I am I am an introvert when it comes to like math. Like I like one on one or even like four people, but more than that, and I can't process everyone. I'll it's just many, I'll t- like, yeah needs wants egos like I can't I can't navigate that. I'll take lots of bathroom breaks, just not even <laughs> to go and use the washroom, but just to give myself some space to breathe. <laughs> Center self, water yeah. on face. <laughs> I hear that. I, I just do that with the bookshelf. <laughs> then I feel like you <laughs> can learn strategy. a lot from someone by looking at their bookshelves. Like if I find like books that I love on someone else's bookshelf, I'm like, oh, I love you. We're friends. <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> it's a great way to get to know somebody just looking at their, their bookshelf. If I see a Sandman like comic shelf on someone's bookshelf, I'm like, oh, oh, we're good. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> you and I need to become friends. <laughs> I would love that. Do you read Sandman? Yeah. Sorry, no, I was saying that would be what you would say ah, to that other person. Yes, no, that is, <laughs> no I, I, I don't actually read Sandman myself. <laughs> that, that has been my obsession since high school. That's, yeah, I love Neil Gaiman. So I'm, um, yes, nice. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love fantasy <laughs> nice. fiction. If I get trapped in this, uh, this uh, human body shell that does not work, I get to read fantasy. That's, that's my role. Nice, <laughs> nice. So I don't know if it's going to go too dark. And if it is, um, we can absolutely change back over to like, cool TV shows, but you talked about suicide ideology and mm-hmm. I have, <laughs> I have scars to prove it. Um, what talked you back? Um, so I never actually attempted suicide or anything for me. It was, it was something that I faced daily when I was so severely ill and isolated up in my room. Um, and it's when you're when you're when the alarm bells are constantly going off in your brain you're in so much pain you're not able to get any sort of restful sleep your thoughts are just going to spiral out of control and for me that's what started to happen on a daily basis and um essentially there were always those thoughts that were going through my head at that point for for quite a while i would say probably for 8 months to a year um that that was something constantly that i was dealing with and my way of coping with that was just to distract myself, listen to podcasts, um, just f- from the moment I'd wake up until the moment I'd go to sleep. I would have something on to distract myself so where I could direct my attention towards that. Um, it did get bad a number of times um, where I would tell my parents, this is what I'm feeling, kind of, and, and my close friends as well, my sister, and almost as like a cry for help, like, I am really really miserable right now i need a i need support like um and it, it's very hard to do that because you feel like you're burdening other people when you come out and actually say that but 
it also was like, I need to go and say this to feel like I'm being heard to get somebody to talk to me so that I can calm down. Um, so that I can calm down enough to like, whatever, go fall asleep or distract myself until these thoughts finally fade away for, for a, a little bit. But yeah, they were pretty constant. They were there quite, um, quite constantly in my life for close to a year. I think the distraction is one of the the least used tools and one of the most effective tools in the toolbox. It really is. And coming from my background where I had the meditation background, that's your, I felt like I was supposed to be able to meditate through it or let go of these suicidal thoughts. Um, but you just get to a place that's so dark and clouded and your mind isn't able to, you're not processing your thoughts normally. You know that, like depression lies. You know that, but you can't really see it in the moment when it's happening. And so really, I just found after a while, I think I, I, I was talking to one of my psychologists about it and she was like, it's okay to distract yourself. Like it's okay to not be able to meditate. Like if you're in a really dark place, maybe that's something you can't do right now. And that's okay. And hearing that, took that burden off of me in a way where I, you know, I guess I felt like I was just being a bad meditator or whatever, or I was just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I was blaming myself for not being able to, to let go of it. And she just pointed the reality to me. It's like, you're in a really, really difficult position. Like, you know, I hope you understand that. And hearing those words kind of helped me understand. Yeah. And meditation can look different for different people. Like it doesn't have to be sitting in a dark room not thinking like it can be meditation can be many different things for sure it can be um yeah it can be anything really you can turn anything into meditation um i wasn't able to walk but if you are just going out for a walk that can be a meditation that's the thing and, i miss the most i yeah. miss going for hikes like yeah. that was where i got my happy it was going out and hiking in the trails and just like i could just like zone or driving with loud music like i miss driving and hiking yeah yeah it's so difficult to adapt when you lose those things that you love so much <laughs> those are the hardest things to lose it wasn't like losing like losing work was really hard and painful but losing my coping mechanisms that sucked the hardest yeah absolutely um my, myself um i didn't i've i'm still able to hike to some extent now not as much as i was and i had a recent leg injury that kind of threw that off for me um <laughs> so yeah injury. <laughs> Yeah, dealing with that COVID and a bunch of <laughs> chronic illness, it's fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know it's it's really difficult when you lose something that you also relate to a sense of your own identity. Um, you know, yeah, it's yeah, challenging to lose that. Like ballet, that was really hard to lose. That it was like that was who you are, and then it's like, nope, that's not who you are anymore. You better figure out the next person you are now. <laughs> Yeah, there's that grieving stage when you're you're grieving the old self that you used to be. For me, it was um, ath athletics. I was a rower and then a triathlete, and like having to give up give up that. It's like that was my only way of external. That was my way of like expressing myself and letting go of like my day's stress. And when you lose that, it's like, well, I have no idea what to do now. <laughs> That is, um, that's something we've, we've definitely talked a lot about on the podcast is having to like shed skin, start a new thing. And um, just really quickly, I just want to go back to the suicide for just a minute. Cause like, yeah. um, if you are feeling like this and you're listening to this and you're, this is like 
absolutely like hitting you in the solar plexus. Uh, we'll have a suicide hotline up at the very top that is both text if you're feeling too anxious to talk to someone and an actual phone number. From my own attempts, I would say that the thing that got me through was don't do anything at night. Um, the depression monster seems to be really able to lie very well at night. <laughs> and um, definitely, uh, yeah, I, I would say just like the curiosity of what happens next is like one of the big things that has always got me through. I've, I always want to find out how something ends. So if you can be curious about what the next minute's going to bring, five minutes, 10 minutes, that can that can be a helpful thing to get through. And distraction is your friend. I just didn't want to let us go without like a few little <laughs> yeah. suicide hotline, please. If you don't have someone in your house that you feel like you can talk to, that is um, an important thing. Um, I'm curious about your media lab. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I joined this. Um, I'm on the advisory board for, for this media lab now. It's called D-Next and it's run by uh, the Center for Independent Living of Toronto. Um, and this was something that has recently been set up, but essentially we have created this training program to help uh, support and train emerging media artists. So whether they be storytellers, people that are into social media, um, creating short documentaries, that sort of thing. So we, so it's essentially like a 10 week program, uh, where, uh, we, we, uh, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. <laughs> um, Those trains are so fast. <laughs> they, they just come and go. And it's like, you're, you're on it. You're on a path and everything makes sense. And then brain fog kicks in and it's like, yeah, you just totally lose it. Okay. I think I can get back on this one. Um, we've put, yeah, we've put together this like 10 week training program where essentially we're providing them with the tools to, um, you know, learn how to use different media equipment, talking about story structure. Um, and then we go and empower them to go and actually create stories. So we, uh, we just, we're just finishing up kind of the very first round. It got interrupted by COVID. I'm actually going through the training program myself, as well as being on the advisory uh, committee, but yeah, we were about to shoot a, a, a short documentary about a father who lives with quadriplegia and all that, and then COVID hit, and it's like you can't go inside of his house anymore. So now we're we're pivoting and and we're we're kind of coming up with a new story. But yeah, one of the other groups, uh, or sorry, the other group, there's only two. They um, have they created a podcast around mobility aids and the joy that they add to their lives. Most people, when, when a lot of able-bodied people, when they look at a wheelchair, they look at it as a negative thing, but really like people with disabilities, they're like, this is my vehicle out into the world. So um, it, it was, it was a really neat episode where, where they spoke about that, all sorts of different mobility aids and, and the different value that they add to their lives that's that's definitely one of the things that I feel like a lot of media gets wrong on wheelchair users like I love my wheelchair that is movement without pain but it's freedom uh, absolutely and and so I I think that's a huge part of of why this entire project is important um dnext the the entire purpose behind it is to get people with disabilities to tell stories on disability because the you know when you when you've got mainstream media they have very short timelines that they need to meet. They're going to fall victim. They're going to be stigmatizing our experience. We really need people with disabilities to tell their own stories. Um, we need to get them out in media. I mean, you look at Hollywood, for example, 95% of 
characters who are disabled are played by non-disabled people. And it's like, how can you be, how can you be, how can this person really project what this, what this experience is? How can this person give an accurate representation of what living, what this disability is like? There, there, there's so many issues with that. There's issues of um, different characters in movies their entire story will simply be their disability. It's just, they are the person with a disability. We pity them. That's it. When really, when you, when you go out and you meet a lot of people with disabilities, many people have simply adapted to them. Many people have been born with them and that is all they know. And they don't see their quality of life as any different from people who are able-bodied. Yeah. I mean, like at the very least screenwriters, and you, if you're going to write the story, you need to spend a lot of time in that community. Like it's, it's important. It's really neat though, in the last like two years to see more decision makers, not be the, the decision makers of the past and in, in stories, like you're seeing more, more voices that are actually telling the stories and it's made for much better entertainment. Exactly. Like that's, I, everybody benefits from it the 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 yeah. quality of the production is going to be better better because it's more believable as well um yeah there's like a big push for um gosh Seth MacFarlane oh, I hope I don't get that wrong um there's a a thing for science in media where there's an act I'm also a science nerd um <laughs> me too <laughs> right oh my god yay <laughs> I just kidnapped someone on a whole talk on robotics so I, <laughs> it's just fascinating stuff um but he started a whole thing on um getting scientists to be able to talk to scriptwriters and directors um so that when they're doing these storylines on time travel or on space travel or planets or diseases that they were actually getting it, the science right because the story is better if if the, the there's a kernel of truth in it like that's way better i'm really hoping that something like that for disability happens so that there's you know when a, a writer wants to write a disabled character they don't pull a glee and like have the all the dreams be i can dance now i'm out of my wheelchair like we just you know we need better stories so i'm really hoping that <laughs> that, that could happen where we would have something like what your project is uh, your uh, think tank group that we could have something like that for media yeah i mean i completely agree that would be that'd be incredible i sure hope that that this trend continues and that things get better and better you need enough disabled people with energy to pull this off. <laughs> yeah, need a lot of us so you can like pick up when one of us is like brain fog can't. <laughs> that certainly could could be an issue. Um, yeah, we can't. Not all of us could be working fifteen hour days like I know they do have on set. So there there are those limitations. Yeah, that come into play. But <laughs> but at the same time, that can be. I I think that some of the responsibility for that can rely on the industry itself to change a little bit. Like. For individual characters who have disabilities, just have the scenes that they are in shoot for over a shorter period of time, or give them more days to to do all those shoots. Yeah, I've seen like a few more shows that are doing better. Like, um, I was it Never Have I Ever. They actually did a decent story, and I was I was pretty impressed with that. And The Magicians, which is like my favorite show ever, they actually did disability and mental health really well. I, and Addictions, I, I felt like they did one of the best jobs dealing with mental health and physical disability of any show. 
I need to get a list of TV shows <laughs> from you because you, it sounds like you've got the best recommendations for that. I spend way too, I think I finished Netflix at this point. I think I've actually like, exhausted Netflix. Um, you could so, start a whole podcast on that alone. Okay, so we are. Um, we're going to start bringing in like any of our previous guests who want to like come back and chat and they don't know exactly what they want to chat about, but they actually enjoyed talking with us. We're going to have like a monthly pop culture episode where we're going to talk about disability and pop culture. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Come on back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> just choose your favorite show and we can talk about like as long as it's something that I, I have watched or I'm willing to watch. <laughs> um, I'm getting a little exhausted with the superheroes right now. We're doing a superheroes and disability thing right now. And I'm really getting disgusted. I'm having a hard time with this one. I'm like, hey, yeah. can we get out of the lake for a minute, please? <laughs> Ah, that's a lot. Um, so yeah, come back on and talk about that. Um, we are at like an hour and a half almost. Yep. Um, so what are some of your favorite shows that are getting you through COVID? And <laughs> I, so, I'm actually just looking for advice basically is what this is coming down to. So I actually have not been watching too much TV at all lately. I and that kind of, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I do have lots of, I mean, um, uh, podcasts. Well, okay. I did watch a show the other day, um, Night on Earth. I love nature documentaries, so that's a huge thing for me. Anything to do with the ocean as well is just that always that is the stuff that I'm most interested in. You see, especially when you get into the deep ocean, you get into bioluminescence, you get into the, all these super weird, weird alien looking like fishes that are down there. That that stuff always fascinates me. I don't understand um, why we look for life outside and like exactly what we're for, like the imagination of like creature design exists right here in like deep water or in we, micro we, like the micro stuff fascinates me I was like the little germs and what they look like that's fascinating it's it's so incredible yeah and and what you were saying there we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the the ocean itself like the depths of the ocean so who was the original nasa astronaut who went and worked on deep sea diving ah uh, that's a good question i have heard of that it's not coming to me Nope. I know exactly what it looks like. It's just not. Anyway, go ahead and like put it in the show um, in our comments if you can remember who it is. I'm sure I'll Google it later if I remember. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy how much we know about outside, but we don't know what's going on on our own planet. It, it really is. It really is. Um, so, so yeah, for me, nature documentaries are a huge thing. I'm trying to think. Yeah, crap. Did you I meant to watch. What's up? Neil deGrasse Tyson, The Cosmos. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. That was great. I'm such a huge fan. I'm such a huge space fan as well. Uh-huh. Um, have you seen Interstellar? I probably did. Remind me. So that was the one where it's in the future and the Earth is essentially dying due to cl- climate disaster and okay, everybody's no. going to die. And I will tell you right now, I will not watch or read any post-apocalyptic stuff because it's too close to home. Uh, I need yeah. escapism. I, I cannot hang with like, we're too close. Like, no. Yeah. Mm-mm. I need to escape I, this. <laughs> I totally hear you. <laughs> it certainly is really. It is quite scary to think about. It, it was. It was one not of the, practicing social distancing. <laughs> Hello there. Yes, yeah, sorry, my cat. Um, I did not realize she was actually in the room, um, and has no. My cat has no understanding of social distancing. No. No. She's she's family, right? Uh, well, it depends. Like she also likes to wake me up in the morning by jumping across my chest with claws. And that's how she lets me know she wants out. And then she's not family. Then she's not my favorite creature. <laughs> and there's that's no her... She's from on the farm. 
that's her her way of expressing love for you I don't understand it. She'll like purr and like, she does like all the cute cat, like I love you things while she's deveining me. And I just, I don't understand what's going on. I'm very confused at this like masochistic relationship she's put us in. I'm, I'm very lost. That's a horrible way to wake up in the morning. <laughs> way. I'm really not okay with it. <laughs> she's one of the like fluffiest like sweetest like most fun things to pet ever she's so soft it's like yeah great time to, to have a yeah great time to have a cat as a companion we have a farm we've got um we just got three new baby chicks oh amazing yeah we got three grown chickens and then we've got a wolf who's 96 pounds who we the rescue told us 50 pounds that was cute and um we had 96 pound wolf and then we have a pug okay how, you, you gotta tell me how does that work like is the wolf trained <laughs> badly. Does he very have... badly um i call him the wolf uh, i call him my little dire wolf he's uh actually half shepherd and half border collie so he's very pretty he is so pretty <laughs> and he's one of the sweetest animals ever but he knows that he can get me back into bed for snuggles if he takes my legs out. Oh no. So he like, will like sidle up to me, like being all sweet and like wanting pets. And then he'll lean into my legs until they crack. And then oh like, no. Have to go back to bed. He's like, Oh, that's sad mommy. And then he like comes over and I also have pots. So I faint really easily. It's a heart issue. So I, me, I me you too, have it too. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We never, uh, we're good. Um, <laughs> we're both sick if that helps uh, <laughs> we did not go into specifics um so i faint a lot and so his way of dealing with that is to lay across my body all 96 pounds so i'll wake up oh, no. 96 pounds across my chest he's like you shouldn't be standing what you need to be laying down you're gonna stay here that certainly won't help with circulation no, but it's really funny. I was laughing so hard. I couldn't call for anyone. So my husband made me get the Apple watch so that I could like, cause he works on the other side of the house. So I was like, this way I can like, let him know the dog is on top of me. Please come save me. <laughs> I can't move. And then we have a little pug who's like a very large hamster and very excitable. That's amazing. I'm really jealous. <laughs> I, I totally understand that. Like my sister is at home with like no kids, no, no animals. And I don't know how she handles it. Like I've got two kids at home. I have, well, I have two teenagers at home and that's fantastic. I love it. I really love it. And I've got my pets. I, I don't know how everyone deals without animals. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had any, never had any dogs or cats no. or anything. We've had uh, fish. Heart. We've had fish. We've had snakes. You but... <laughs> <laughs> you've had snakes? King Cobras though. I'm sorry. You've had a cobra? No, no king cobras. Okay. Oh, sorry. You gave me a minute <laughs> no. there. I like what I, uh, we were doing just fine here until <laughs> oh, yeah, my no. daughter would be so jealous that I will not have a snake in the house and she wants one more than life itself. Oh, they were, they were pretty docile. They nothing, nothing venomous or anything. I, I love snakes. I will not feed one. I, I cannot, I, I used to have rats as pets and I cannot handle the idea of taking like a little rat and putting it in a cage where I can't get away yeah we didn't yeah we we didn't actually feed them any rats they were uh we only fed them worms but oh that's easier yeah I, I know it shouldn't be I mean I get life is life but I, I can deal a lot better if they're not cute like if it's not a Disney character it's much easier it really is yeah <laughs> I'm I don't have a huge emotional attachment to worms <laughs> I, I you know I, I just have to get rid of them or put them in my garden as quick as possible yeah yeah. 
<laughs> okay, so I'm sorry, you had like the documentaries and is there anything else that you want to talk about? We will absolutely have, like, if you go to our show notes at the very top, I will have all of the links for um, Discomfort Zone podcast. It'll be really easy to go and listen to to all the episodes, which I highly recommend doing. You need more episodes. That's kind of where I'm going with this. Thank you. I've got a couple in the works right now, okay, which are hopefully going to come out soon. <laughs> I need more content. <laughs> I'm certainly going to get some more in, in a month or so. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss or push forward that I, I we distractedly meandered past and you're always welcome back on? Thank you so much. No, I think that's everything. Um, and brain fog is kind of kicking in for me pretty bad. So I think if I continue for too much longer, I'm going to get incredibly boring. So <laughs> I mean, hey, or we'll just talk about snakes for the rest of the episode. I could do that. <laughs> we could do that. We could talk documentaries. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Um, be kind, be gentle, as always, in whatever way it looks like to you. It's never been more important. Be a badass. Uh, we do not have any advertising. So if you want to support the episode, just head over to our Patreon. It's a kind thing to do if that's just not in your budget or not in what you want to deal with. Um, no worries. If you could share these episodes, that means the world to us. We just hit 200,000 downloads. Humbled beyond belief. I um, just jaw dropped. Like the only, I think the only content that a continent that is not listening is Antarctica right now. So or we're just humbled and beyond grateful. So that's all thanks to you guys sharing. So thank you so much, everyone. Head over to the YouTube if you actually want to see what we look like. That's always fun. Uh, hi, smiles. Um, and I think Eva will be on next week. So this is Monica Michelle with Explicitly Six. Some of you know we've actually turned Invisible Not Broken into a network. So we now have multiple podcasts on our network. So mine's Explicitly Six. So have a great week, everyone. <laughs>